to Cinema in Seconds. This is the podcast where we take a look at small moments in great movies. My name is Ian. And I'm Daniel. And this week, uh, we're taking a little break from our going to various years, and we're going to be talking about movie endings. So we're going to be talking about the very last moments in films and why they work so well. And so we've each picked three films to talk about. Um, but we probably should preface this with some sort of a spoiler something, eh? Because it's kind of going to be hard to get around in this Yeah, I mean, instance. spoilers for every film we talk about. Yeah. I mean, you, you've been adding timestamps to the podcast so people know when we start talking about a film. Right. So if you've seen the timestamp that we talk about X movie that you haven't seen and you don't want the ending spoiled for you, we would advise clicking to the next film we discuss. Yeah. Yeah, take a look at those show notes. I'm... Um, I, I try to keep those pretty accurate. Um, and we'll, tr- we'll try to be careful about not, uh, in subsequent discussions, not being explicit about spoilers from past films. I don't think it'll come up, but yeah. I don't know. I guess we'll try to be wary of that. And just uh, just speaking for myself, I'm not going to say that... I don't think any of my films here have like really big twist endings or anything like that. But there is always the idea that well, we're going to be talking about characters, so you'll know whether they survive or don't survive the film, right? Because just with the nature of what we're talking about. Um, so there is that element that you should all, all be aware of when you're listening, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And maybe yeah, you don't care. Point. <laughs> that's fine, too. Possibly, yeah. I mean, I think all of my moments are... The endings I've chosen are not really important in terms of how they resolve... Uh, the plot. In fact, right. all of them in some ways are kind of... The plot itself is really secondary. So, um, you know, it's not the worst thing if they get spoiled, but at the same time, I totally understand the uh, desire to avoid such things. Right. Um, I should quickly mention that given the nature of our show, we usually talk about little moments. I tried to some extent to have that reflected in my picks. Obviously, the ending of the film almost by definition, can't really be a little thing. Yeah. It's the ending. But like, I tried to pick endings whose whose power was kind of more in a certain subtlety and even quietness rather than a grandeur. So um, I don't know if you had a similar selection process or if you just chose the endings you liked. I guess I kind of took um, our podcast title more literally where I'm thinking about the actual last seconds, right? So not like what's the final scene or what's the climax, but what are those last images that you're left with or the last line that you're left with or, or what have you. So that's, that's how I chose my picks. Nice. So we're still maintaining our show's internal theme, even if we're yeah, expanding in a bit of a different uh, topic. Right. Um, cool. Well, why don't we get started? Do you want to kick us off with our first uh, favorite ending? Sure. So with the three movies that I picked, um, I guess you could say that I, basically, I picked one that's comedic, one that's tragic, and one that's triumphant. So I'm kind of mm. spanning the whole uh, spectrum here. So the first one I want to talk about is a great action movie from 1974 called The Taking of Pelham 123, which is a movie I actually just first discovered last summer, and I loved it. I immediately loved it. It's got a lot of DNA of the movies that like the action movies that I grew up in with, right? Like it's a huge influence on Die Hard mm-hmm. um, and movies like Speed and things like that. I mean, even uh, 
Tarantino took the the idea of naming all the characters colors from for, for his Reservoir Dogs from this movie. So Taking a Pelham 123 is a story about a subway car in New York City that gets uh, hijacked for ransom. And like we said to spoilers, if you don't know, if you don't want to know what happens, um, I'll tell you, I'm going to say that right away. But <laughs> I will say, if you haven't seen this movie, go check it out. Yep. But basically, and this is probably one of the most, <clears throat> sorry to cut you off, but like of all the picks we have between the two of us, where the reveal is really like, you don't want, you want to have that fresh the first yeah, time through because it's right. pretty great. Yeah. And uh, I guess they sort of get away with it, but not like there was, there's four terrorists, right? And there's one that clean gets away with it and he t- takes his money and, and nobody can find him. And he's played by Martin Balsam, who's kind of one of those mm-hmm. guys, those actors that, Nobody talks about, but he seems to show up in everything. Like he's in Psycho and he's in uh, 12 Angry Men. And yeah, he's, he ends up showing up in a lot. So the interesting thing about his character is that they kind of made this character choice with him that he has a cold. Which makes sense because in this movie, they, they do a really good job of making all the people really feel like real people for the most part. I would say maybe not the mayor, but otherwise uh, <laughs> most of the characters are, you know, they feel like, you know, true New Yorkers. Uh, but so he, he's got a cold and he's coughing and sneezing throughout the movie. And there's even one scene where Walter Matthau, who is the head of transportation or something like that, but he's kind of the the protagonist that we're following as he's trying to negotiate with the terrorists and figure this whole thing out. Um, Robert Shaw is the leader of the terrorist group and he is awesome as he always is in this movie. And they're, they're having a conversation through the radio. Martin Balsam's character is there, Mr. Green, and he sneezes. And what I love is Walter Matthau just immediately says, Gesundheit, and then carries on with the negotiation. The great part about this is that this isn't this ends up coming back at the very ending of the movie. And this is a great example of setup and payoff, I think. Because at the end of the movie, they're hunting down who they think might have been involved. And they're kind of looking at a list of, I don't know, disgruntled former employees or something. And they're going door to door to try to figure it out, try to find this uh, this hijacker. And they end up going to his apartment and it's this big tense scene because he's hidden the money somewhere and they're almost finding it. They're kind of wandering around and they're, okay, so they haven't figured anything out. He's gotten away with it and they're about to leave. And then at the very end, just as Walter Matthau is closing the door, uh, Mr. Green sneezes. <laughs> and all of a sudden, Walter Matthau just immediately again says, Gesundheit, and then the door stops and it opens and he gives us like, this grin that I can't even describe that only Walter Matthau can give. <laughs> and that's where the movie ends. And you're like, like, yep. Gotcha. Yeah. It's a brilliant, uh, moment. I-, I like that you describe how essential like Matthau's performance is, how like the instinctive Gesundheit he throws in both times. Um, I also think it's, you talk about how it's a great setup and payoff. I think one of the things that makes it so great is it's what, uh, Billy Wilder called an example of like the super joke where 
it's funny the first time, but it's even funnier the second time when it comes back, in part because you don't expect it to come back. It seems when it first happens, like, it's just a joke for that moment. You're not seeing the payoff. You're not seeing it even as a setup. So when it does have a payoff, it's, like, so much more gratifying as an audience member because it's both much funnier, but it's also, like, it's so satisfying to see that come together in terms of how clever it is where you just have the same... And Matho's face sells it to you. You have the exact same feeling of just you know of that gotcha moment it's yeah, wonderful it is and he is a it's very much like an inside joke with the audience right like mm-hmm. we're in a, we we get it and the moment he sneezes and he looks back that's all that it needs it does it cuts to credits right there and that's all it has to do because we get mm-hmm. it also very what maybe i'm just thinking of billy wilder because <clears throat> walter mathos in it but again very wilder it's not a billy wilder movie i should specify but the just it ends right the moment it needs to. Like, you, it, it's so sudden, but it's so complete. Yeah. Where, yeah, like, the story is over. There's nothing else to be said. Um, and that suddenness is a big part of it. I also love, like, just the timing of it. How the door is, like, starting to shut. And, like, just before it hits, it's, it stops. Oh, it's great. Yeah, <laughs> it is. <laughs> you're right about the timing because you're worried for a while there that, oh, well, okay, we just had this great all these great action scenes and and the train has been, we figured out how to stop the train and save everybody. But now they're going to go into this whole plot of trying to, trying to solve the mystery. Like, well, that's going to kill it, but you're right. It, that's all that it needs is that one scene in the apartment and then that sudden ending. And it just fits the flow of the movie so well. It's great stuff. That's my pick. Very much a movie worth, uh, seeing if you haven't i i stumbled across it uh further back than you did but similar where just kind of you know it was on tcm one day and i'm like oh i've heard of this and there was like a remake that some people seem to like i haven't seen that one but uh threw it on and thought wow this is just really exciting one other detail i want to quickly point to just because it it strikes me as being very funny and you mentioned the mayor is that bit where they're talking i don't remember the exact details but they need to get something out of the mayor to help the people who have been you know, being held hostage and he agrees to do it. And his line of reasoning is that it's two dozen more votes for him in the next election or <laughs> yeah. however many people are captured. And it's funny. You mentioned two of the film was like most definitely an influence on Die Hard. That feels like a line out of Die Hard. Yeah. It's not, there's not even a mayor character in Die Hard, but just the way that that, that film sort of cynical attitude about authority is like so traced to, to this movie. Not that, and you could trace it further back to like dog, this to dog day afternoon, say, but, right. uh, yeah, that that's uh, sort of cynicism and the the way it's used for humorous effect. Pretty great. Yeah, yeah. It's a there's lots of humor in this movie. It's a it's just a fun movie. I would highly mm. recommend it. Also, why Mathos perfect is the film's hero because he's he's believable as like a sort of investigator, older guy who'd be taking this on in like a serious capacity. But he also is like relatable everyman comedy actor yeah. too. So, mm, yeah, great stuff. Well, it's funny you talked about how your three moments can be divided into, you know, comical, tragic, and triumphant. I didn't have a similar classification, but looking at my three endings, there's, you know, sad on a personal level, sad but with a ray of hope, and sad in a profound way about the nature of humanity. So, you know, that's cool. (laughs) (laughs) And the other ending I was thinking about throwing in there was also just devastatingly upsetting. Um, I guess I'll throw a quick honorable mention. Uh, last week when we recorded with uh, Michael uh, of the movie Vampire, he mentioned uh, 
his pick, if he was on this week, would have been the ending to The Usual Suspects. Oh, specifically right. the, uh, you know, and like that, he's gone. You know, payoff of the ending after the big Kaiser Soze twist is revealed. And I didn't, I don't have that as my official moment, but I did want to throw a quick honorable mention to it. Especially because I think he made a good point in us discussing it about how essential the execution of the editing and the performances to that uh, twist landing because the twist itself is great in a way it's very pulpy but it works in the moment but really it's not more than just the twist it's the way that it's constructed cinematically that really uh, uh, really makes it sing I'm still speaking somewhat vaguely because again it's not my official pick and it is a very plot centered twist so yeah. if by some chance you're listening to this and you have no idea who's Kaiser Soze um, I don't want to ruin that for you but I think he makes a good point about how essential the filmmaking is but um my pick is less twisty, although it does come from a thriller. Uh, this is The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, specifically the David Fincher-directed remake from 2011. Okay, this so, is going to be interesting because I've always found this uh, ending to be a bit of a wet noodle, so I'm interested, okay. I'm interested to see you convince me otherwise. Th this will be interesting. I will try my best. So The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is an interesting film from a structural level because... It's a film that spends, most of its plot is really focused around this mystery about this uh, young girl who was murdered, you know, 40 years ago on this small Swedish island. And the journalist, Mikhail Blomqvist, who is investigating what happened that day, who eventually brings in a hacker slash journalist named Lisbeth Salander, uh, who's about the first half of the movie is dealing with her entirely separate story, uh, but who does have some tangential uh, links to Mikkel, she comes in to investigate. And at a certain point in the film, the mystery gets resolved, and you're thinking, oh, okay, this movie's almost over, right? No. It keeps going for another 20 minutes or so, so Lisbeth can then uh, help Mikkel's character get revenge, or Mikkel, rather, get revenge on the uh, industrialist who set him up and uh, screwed him over at the beginning of the story. So there's another 20 minutes dealing with that, and a lot of it is set up for, presumably set up for sequels that never ended up getting made. So we spend 20 minutes dealing with that, and then that gets resolved. We're like, okay, now the movie's like over, right? And it mostly is, but there's one small final stretch where uh, it's Christmas time, and Lisbeth goes out and gets a present for Mikkel, a leather jacket that he used to own, or one like uh, jacket he used to own when he was younger. She gets a card for him, and we see him. We see her writing. Uh, we don't see what she writes, but we see her writing some kind of message to him. She talks to her guardian about how she's made a friend and how much better she's doing. And it's not like overly sentimental or dramatic, but it's a pretty drastic leap for her as a person who's been very cut off from others, very defensive, that she's let someone in and that she feels a really strong bond with somebody else. There's even a moment before when she first sets off to get. Uh, uh, back at the industrialist uh, for that portion of the movie she needs to ask for a loan from Mikkel and I think it's like it's 20 grand or something it's a not insubstantial amount of money and they talk about it for a bit and Mikkel just says okay like he just trusts her and you can tell by the way she plays it that's a really big deal for her so we have all this setup of her getting this present getting this card and she goes down to his office to meet with him and she sees him, but she, he doesn't see her. And Mikkel is with his former lover, still arm wrapped around her, going off together, you know, 
to do whatever, but clearly still very much an item. And Lisbeth sits alone watching it in this sort of really gentle, melancholic snowfall. And she takes it in, and then she takes the jacket that she had got for Mikkel as a present, tosses it in a trash can, and drives away as Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross's score slowly brings us to the credits. So, uh, I love this ending for two main reasons. One is that I love how simple it is. The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo is a thriller murder mystery and a pretty sensationalist one in terms of the barbarism of the murders that are uh, depicted and the main villain's lair, we'll call it at one point, is pretty diabolical. The opening credits of the film feel like David Fincher's rendition of a James Bond movie intro, which just to say they're like horrifically <laughs> nightmarish and intense and brutal. You know, it's a film that deals in some really despicable acts of violence and 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 i don't know uh, cruelty and with a certain sensationalist twist and yet the ending is so devastating in the most simplest possible way the feeling that you've been rejected because somebody chose someone else over you and that hurts so much more than almost anything else in the film despite the fact that it's the most ordinary type of hurt and yet that's why it's you know so profoundly felt uh, the other reason I really love this ending is because I think it actually sums up why the film works, because it does have this weird structure where in adapting um, the novel, it doesn't try to fit it into the three-act Hollywood mystery structure. It isn't afraid to have Lisbeth do her own thing in the story for like an hour before she hooks up with Mikkel, or to have this long tangential... Uh, epilogue to the story after the main mystery has been dealt with and I think the reason that that works is Fincher realizes that the film's not really about the mystery plot that's fun and that's a great framework but it's really about these two characters and the way that it ends with uh, really weighing the relationship between those two characters and where it might go from here I think cuts to the core of why I find this film so appealing so uh, that's my defense for the ending of the girl with the dragon tattoo. Um, I will open the floor to attacks <laughs> on why it is actually bad. No, I'm not. I'm not going to say it's bad, but I'm just. I guess from my perspective, I would always ask the question: What is she expecting from from her relationship with him? Like, <clears throat> and maybe it's that that uh, disconnect between their expectations from each other that makes it so makes it as devastating as, as you find it. I'm not sure. Uh, I think I just had a little bit of a tough time buying their relationship as the, as a core for the film. I'm not sure why that is. I don't know. I do. Do you find that they had lots of chemistry as you were watching it or I do? Yeah. I think do. they're, they're a fascinating pair. Um, I mean, it helps. It's a lot of it is pretty uh, subtle and in the background almost. Like a lot of it's even just little details. Like uh, the first time uh, that Lisbeth and Mikkel have sex, it's really watching Rooney Mara's performance in the scene where she's setting up. Where you see she's very nervous to even like go forward with this. Like the, I think the typical way to shoot the scene, and especially from like a male filmmaker perspective, would be to make Lisbeth very alluring and you know, erotic and her just come on to him in this really charged way. But that it's really shot, this seems really designed from her perspective where you feel her 
nervousness in like making this leap and trusting this person. So I do think that there's um, there's a lot of detail in the story between the two and how they come to rely on and care about each other, but it's not upfront in a lot of ways. I would I didn't really think about this in my latest viewing, but I'd be curious to look for the blocking between the two because I know like the Ever From a Painting video on Seven talks about how you can trace the entire relationship between uh, Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt's character just by how they're blocked together in scenes. And it's like the way he lays it out, you're like, wow, yeah, that like <laughs> that's the whole story. So I'd be curious to rewatch the film specifically looking for that. But I, I do find that there's um, enough there. To your point, though, about you're not sure what she's expecting. I think that's valid. Um, for me, that's part of the power of it in that um, learning to, or rather choosing to be open and trusting and rely on people like that does mean potentially misreading them and getting hurt in these very ordinary ways. Because, you know, like it's, it, it'd be one thing to structure the film around, uh, you know, you can't trust people because they'll hurt you in like a really cynical right. sort of edgy way. But this is more just like relying on people means you will get hurt in more ordinary ways because things might matter to you more than they do to others and you and them not to realize that you're misreading each other. So That makes sense. I think maybe I just didn't want it to end like that. You know what I mean? That's fair. Like maybe I just I just don't like that she was let down like that. I don't know. Well, I, I remember I my mom watching the movie and texting me and her straight up, like, the first thing she said was, like, I felt bad for Lisbeth at the end. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, it's, you know, which is probably the first thing that sparked me thinking about that ending more. <clears throat> it's just that's the first thing my mom went to, which I thought was interesting. Um, it'd be better. I mean, that feeling of, like, not wanting it to end that way. If we could get those sequels that <laughs> should have happened. Isn't that the truth? Uh, I, I've never been so disappointed i think with a film studio in my entire life yeah. truly <laughs> yeah i think he, he could have done some pretty awesome stuff mm -hmm. especially since he basically took a he hasn't done much <laughs> this whole decade like no i mean he, since then he's made like two films yeah and he dipped his i really loved both TV, of them but, but yeah yeah and i liked i loved man mind hunter yeah, so much i really hope that third season happens well, but we'll uh They've taken so much Fincher away from me that I wanted. They can't take <laughs> this too. But um, yeah, I mean, I I don't know. And to, to some extent, and maybe this is me just trying to make, you know, lemonade from my lemons. The fact that it is unresolved, there is something just really profoundly sad and poetic and how just this really simple understated ending. If that is the final word on the trilogy, as much as that sucks because it's a trilogy with like literally one part. I don't know. It could be a lot worse. I guess. And it's a big waste of money. Like, at least go return the jacket. <laughs> that is true. That is true. I'm like, that was a nice jacket. You could have kept it for yourself, even. <laughs> yep. You know, that's the best thing about getting dumped is if you got presents for them, those are yours now. I guess it's not as symbolic. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. The ending wouldn't have had quite the same power if she just put it on herself and drove away. Like, yeah. wait, what happened? <laughs> we see her returning it to Costco, and that's actually the last scene. That would be great. That's a good, <laughs> practical, logical ending. Oh, man. <laughs> All right, I'll pass it back to you for another sad ending. Yeah, now let's go to my tragic pick. So I'm going with 2005's Brokeback Mountain, directed by Ang Lee. And uh, with Brokeback Mountain... 
Of course, this one, definitely if you if you haven't seen it and you're aching to see it and you don't know want to know what happens to these characters, stop. But the the whole movie is centered around the relationship between is it how do you say his name? Enos? Ennis? And Ennis. Uh, and Jack. Ennis and Jack. It's been a while since I've actually seen the movie in full, but but one thing, like I actually I might have only seen this movie once. Really? I think so. And it wasn't like it wasn't even back then. I missed it back then. I caught up with it a few years later. Maybe I've seen it twice. But the ending I want to talk about because it has always stuck with me. And it kind of capped off the movie as this is a great movie just with that ending. So they're, of course, they're, um, they're ranchers in the, in the, is it the 60s, 50s or 60s, some, sometime around there. And, of course, they, they fall for each other. And so a gay relationship in uh, Wyoming, I believe. Mm-hmm. In in the sixties, right in in the kind of lifestyle, the ranching lifestyle that they live, of course, is incredibly frowned upon, and they cannot be, they cannot live their lives like they want to. Right, they can't be together in the society that they're in, and that's where the heart of the movie sits: is how do these two people cope with their situation when they basically can't live the lives that they want to live and one of them is definitely wants to try to live that life more than the other and so uh, Jake Gyllenhaal's character Ennis is he he's a little bit more willing to put himself out there where Jack is a much more reserved character and he's he's the one that's saying this has to be a secret we can't we can't hurt the people around us we can't let other people know right and that's the main conflict of the movie as you go across. And so what ends up happening is Ennis ends up um, dying young, right? And they, he, he ends up being lynched. And I, I always thought that the way that the movie dealt with his death was pretty interesting. Because if I remember quite, they, they didn't really sensationalize it very much, did they? No, it was just it, kind it's of very understated. Yeah, it was definitely just something that happened. But then you see Heath Ledger's. Oh, I'm getting the characters mixed up, aren't I? It's Jack that ends up. Kid. Now I don't remember. <laughs> kind of yeah, the Wikipedia. Jack version. is Jake Gyllenhaal, so he's the one that ends up. Uh, ends up dying. All right, we'll re-record yeah. all of this. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and anyway, so the, the movie, the rest of the movie takes place with Heath Ledger trying to come to terms with this. And he ends up losing his family for the most part. And he ends up living alone in a trailer. But the very final shot of the movie always gets me. Because it's him. He open, He goes into his trailer. He opens up the closet where he's got Jack's suit there. Where he's been keeping it. And that's kind of his, his last memento of him. And then the door he he looks at the suit he closes the closet door and then the camera just sits at the back of the trailer where there's this this little window and outside that window you see this amazing well wyoming landscape or or is it alberta i think (laughs) i think they actually filmed it in alberta (laughs) but they see this massive expanse landscape out there and it's such a great frame to end on because it says everything about their relationship where there's a window full of possibilities out there 
right? What their lives could have been if they, if they were willing, to, if they lived in a different time, if they were willing to, to risk, you know, in what well, risk um, isolation or even death, which as we see is, is definitely a possibility. Um, but it's all confined in that tiny little frame because, and it feels very claustrophobic. They're in the back of this trailer. You see the possibilities outside the window, but you're stuck. You're stuck in that trailer, just looking out that tiny frame. And that's exactly what their lives were like, right? What Ennis's life was like. He, he basically went through his life not living, essentially. He was with, he was with um, Michelle Williams, who he cared about, but he wasn't in love with her. He was in love with Jack. And he didn't get to, he didn't get to live that experience that he wanted to. And I just think that's a brilliant example of how a single image can say so much. And Ang Lee is, like, he truly is a, a great director being able to do stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to compare it to even, because it's always brought up in whenever you have a character framed outside of something, but especially because it's a Western, the ending to The Searchers, yeah. which is also where characters, like, framed outside of the world that they want to be in uh and i mean i don't know if it is a direct reference on ang lee's part the fact the fact that brokeback mountain does function in some ways as a western of sorts or at least has a lot of the iconography uh of a western does lend some credence that it might be a direct reference but whether it is or not i think there's something really profound in how the film is somewhat responding to that idea of being uh cast out from where you want to be especially because in the searchers it's something that ethan brought on himself yeah at the end of the day like it might be tragic that he can't live the life he wants but it's also largely his own fault but that's not the case here no it's the exact opposite it's someone who is uh cut off from that world some to some extent he's making that choice for himself but largely because of these external pressures fear of ostracization marginalization and of potential violence inflicted on him that leads to this insular life outside of what he wants um i'd be curious actually now i want to rewatch the film and get to that shot just to think about how it maybe is different from that searcher searcher shot as well and how if that i if that difference in um those characters is also reflected in the framing but i think it's a great pick it's one that i hadn't even it's not even the beat i thought you were necessarily going for in the ending but is really profound i think in the way that you make sense of it i think it's right on point yeah it's a the interesting thing with this movie is i remember when it when it came out and people it was a big buzz film and, and you know people would say you know it was it was the gay cowboy movie and it, you know there's a lot of jokes being made about that and then there's a lot of you know critical acclaim around how brave it was and things like that um, and then people would say things like, well, it's just a romance, right? It's, it doesn't matter if it's two men or a man and a woman. It's just a romance. And I'm thinking, you are really shortchanging the film. This romance has to be a gay romance because that's, that's the only way that they have that those social pressures that we talked about, right? That's what defines their relationship in many ways. And without that, the film doesn't have its tragic nature. And it's not saying nearly the same things that it 
it is trying to say. Um, and I think it's a much deeper film for that, right? It's mm-hmm. it's not the token gay romance movie because at this point there really weren't a lot, right? At this, no, certainly point, not in this from Hollywood. No, absolutely. Like you not. could find them on like more independent cinema and more outsider cinema but like before this for like big hollywood movies especially like you might have comedies like the birdcage but in terms of dramas there's like philadelphia which was in 1993 and is i would say a mixed bag film wise right um probably a couple others but yeah it was still it was still singular enough that that element of it is itself exceptional and still is i mean you talked about how in 2005, when it came out, there was all this chatter of, like, reducing it to the gay cowboy movie. And I distinctly remember uh, one of the years that I was... I think the first year that I TA'd for the Intro to Film course, this was the first film shown. And, um, or possibly, it might have actually been my first... As a first-year student taking the course, it might have been that far back. But let's say it was that far back. It's 2013. Um, and I remember hearing people say in the audience when they saw the film we were watching, oh, we're watching a gay cowboy movie. A lot of murmurs about that. But when it got to the end, response was very different. Right. You could really feel the audience having been, like, completely pulled into the story and completely um, taken with that ending and really weighing it and those characters, which was comforting to see because I remember at first hearing that was really disheartening. I was like, give me a break. Are we seriously still here? But to see that same audience be so profoundly affected by what uh, we all saw, was pretty great. Um, And to your point too, that point about the dismissal of, oh, it's just a romance. One, that's clearly inaccurate. Like (laughs) it's so central to the story and the themes and the characters that it's a queer romance. But two, there is something very like, I don't know, misogynistic in a sense of like masculine stories being the one that matters that a story a love story is seen as feminine even if it's between two men and therefore oh it's just a romance it's not about something important um which is just because even if you ignore the you know uh the queer i mean it's not really queer subtext the queer element to the film which i don't know why you would but even if you did it is still or I'll, I'll phrase it differently. Even if you ignore the elements of the film that are about the ways in which their romantic feelings are repressed, uh, both by themselves and by the society they're in, it's still just like a beautifully written love story with really great characters and whose love you completely in, fall into. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, that I've never got behind that dismissal of it. It's, it's a, it is a love story and it's a fantastic one. Yeah, it's very well crafted, and yeah, like I said, that ending just tied it all together for me. I, the moment I saw that, I was like, it just, it was just that punch you needed at the very end. That mm-hmm. this is exactly what the movie's about in one image, and I loved it. Nice. Okay, so where well, are we going now? Are we going a little going bit lighter? The, <laughs> a little bit lighter, and a film that. Uh, is from a director who will say lacks the same visual uh, discipline and poetry than Ang Lee. Talking Kevin Smith <laughs> and his debut feature film, Clerks. So, the ending to Clerks, it's interesting because there's an alternate ending, which I'll talk about in a bit. Because, wow, does, had they it's gone with that alternate. ending, it would really change the film. But the 
Story of Clerks, for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's about a someone who works at like a convenience store, Dante. He gets called into work on his day off, thinking it's only going to be for a couple hours. It ends up being the whole day, and it's the most hellish day imaginable, where, you know, there's a lot of comical hijinks, but also a lot of, like, really serious problems. He ends up going to a funeral of someone he used to date at one point. The funeral goes awry when Randall leans on the casket and knocks it over, which we don't see. We just hear about it, and it's way funnier that way. Um, but there's his, you know, his current relationship is falling apart because he's kind of uh, courting his old high school girlfriend, and he's sort of really indecisively between the two. Uh, and the one girl he's courting will say things don't work out with her for, again, very exaggerated comical reasons. And near the end, he has this epiphany where he realizes, oh, I really do love, you know, the girl I'm with, except his best friend, Randall, who works in the video store at that exact moment, is telling her he doesn't love you anymore. He's still hung up on his girlfriend from high school. And, you know, he's too cowardly to tell you. So I'm telling you. So then she breaks up with Dante. Dante attacks Randall. They have this big fight in, in the convenience store where they smash and destroy everything. One might argue it's symbolic of the rage Dante holds to the <laughs> store itself. You know, or maybe they just, you know, thought, well, we have this stuff in the store and we can break it. That's like one of the few <laughs> things of production value we can do for the story. But they have this big fight and then they're sitting in the aftermath of it because like it's a fight, but they're also like schlubby dudes. So it's not exactly, you know, a fight for the ages. It's pretty awkward and they're both just pretty sore afterwards. And Dante starts woe is me again about how crappy his life is and how the world's against him. And he keeps saying the line. He said throughout the film, I'm not even supposed to be here today. And at this point, Randall throws it back in his face and talks about how you're in charge of your own destiny. You chose to come into work today. You chose to try and patch things up with your ex-girlfriend before even talking about how you felt with your current one. You want to blame someone for your situation in life, blame yourself. And he really lays this charge on him of like, you know, if you do want to make better, you need to go and make better. You can't just sit here wallowing in your self-pity talking about other worlds against you. So at the end of the, the very end, they're cleaning up the um, the quick stop after trashing it. And uh, Dante talks about how he's going to try and uh, he's going to visit his ex in the hospital because uh, she's there for reasons. And uh, he's going to try and smooth things over with um, his, his up till recently current girlfriend who just dumped him. And there's this sort of moment of hope. And as Randall starts to leave and at the beginning of the film, um, the shutters to the quick stop were broken, so he couldn't open them. So it's just like pitch black. So he had to like spray paint a sheet that said, I assure you were open. So at the end, Randall the opens the door again. <laughs> the shoe, shoe polish. Yes, that's right. Uh, that's what they used to, to draw that up. So at the very end, um, Randall grabs that, throws it back inside and yells at Dante, you're closed in a sort of jokey way. And Soul Asylum song, Can't Even Tell, hits the soundtrack. And I love it because it's, it's sort of a melancholic ending. It's kind of downtrodden because Dante has had this the worst day imaginable, but there is this lingering hope of like, okay, well, it's a bad day, but it's just another day. Tomorrow is a chance to do better. And, you know, maybe he will start inching towards improving his life in some capacity and finding some self-fulfillment. And what I really like about that too is how Clerks is in some ways a very silly movie. There's an extended bit where they're, playing hockey, road hockey on the roof of the quick stop. Um, the reason that his ex-girlfriend traumatizes herself is because she accidentally has sex with a dead body in the bathroom of the quick stop. Um, it's a very outrageous film, 
But if you look at it as just sort of a metaphorical extension of the worst day in your crappy nine to five dead end job, it's extremely relatable. Like, I don't think anyone has had days quite as extreme as, or eventful as Dante's, but we've all had those days in those crappy jobs that really just felt like everything was piling in on us and felt just, at least I have. I know when I worked at uh, a fast food uh, place for a while, like it felt like clerks every day of my life. Um, but there's such a uh, small inkling of hope about, you know, how we can make, uh, how Dante can make things better and how as an audience, if you're watching this in a similar place, you can too. And I really like how it goes about that in a way that's so subtle and really contextualizes everything we've seen so far as being, yes, exaggerated, but ultimately very real. The original ending to the film does not do that. No. The original ending goes on for a couple more seconds and someone randomly comes in the store and Dante says, oh, we're closed. And the guy pulls out a gun, shoots Dante, robs the register and leaves. And the final shot of the film is da of this version of the film is Dante on the ground, covered in blood, slowly dying, cut to credits over silence. And it completely changes the film into just like almost cruel nihilism about how the world sucks and there's nothing you can do about it. And it takes what would have been it had it happened that way, it, it would have basically shattered the comedy because even if the rest of the film preceding it, you found extremely funny, which I do. It's hard then to get to that ending and still feel that sense of levity because it is such a 180. Um, and I, it's interesting, too, because we talk about films as being like, when we analyze them and talk about themes, as feeling like they must have been so carefully thought out. And obviously, Kevin Smith is not exactly Kubrick. He's not known for that sort of pers uh, you know, precision. But at the same time, when you get to the ending of Clerks, it does feel like that ending is the perfect ending for the story. So to think how wrong it could have been <laughs> is endlessly fascinating to me. But uh, in, in its current state, I think Clerks is, for all its silliness and all its, um, all you could say about Kevin Smith and the movies he would go on to make and the themes that they would go on to have, I think Clerks is still actually a really, a much more sophisticated film than it's sometimes given credit for, at least in terms of uh, both acknowledging the ways in which menial work like that really does suck and sort of crushes one spirit but also not letting its protagonist off the hook right. not just presenting a woe is me bit and i think that ending gets to that perfectly yeah that's a great analysis of the of good old clerks i think with the ending it, it was like he like the alternate ending it's almost like he wanted to punctuate the idea that this is his worst day ever mm -hmm. and i think there's a dark comedy way that that could be done but i don't think that kevin smith certainly not at that point in his career, well, probably not in his career, would have the deafness to do that, right? I think no. you would need to be like a high, high-level director in order to pull something like that off. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, you're right. It does change the tone of what that ending is going for completely. Um, I, well, I like that uh, Randall's the truth-sayer a little bit too, right? Because like, mm -hmm. he's just a goofball through most of the movie. And I like that he's kind of this outside observer who's close to him and just, yeah, telling him what he needs to hear. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting, too, with the Randall thing, because I always that always struck me as like Randall is the most sort of, you know, lazy layabout character who just does not care what his job treats the customers mostly like crap. Um, to my amusement, I think it's great, but he's just, you know, complete screw up 
uh, aimless slacker. But in that moment when he's yelling at Dante, you can get the impression he's kind of yelling at himself too. Yeah. Like he uses that as a defense mechanism because he's afraid to take that leap forward. Um, and I think actually the actor, um, Jeff Anderson, I think is his name kind of really, he's not a professional actor, but he, you know, is in this and he's in clerks too. And a couple other Kevin Smith movies, but I think he really gets the character because in clerks Two, the sort of main narrative, the climax essentially is Randall proposing to Dante. They should buy back the quick stop and open it themselves because that was actually the happiest time in their lives. And they can actually, you know, they don't have to necessarily be go the typical routes of success to find happiness. And how it was originally written, apparently, was more he blurted out that idea, Randall did, and realized, oh, yes, that's what we should do. And Jeff Anderson was like, no, this needs to be something that he's thought about for a long time. So when he yells it back, it's not, oh, yes, that is what I would do. It's that's what I would do as almost like a screw you to Dante. Right. Um, so I, th I think, which is interesting to talk about, because like I don't think anyone thinks of Jeff Anderson as much of an actor, but I do think he really gets the character. And when he's making that speech at the end of the first Clerks, it really, I think, hits the right note. And especially because I first saw the film when I was like 13 and that stuff didn't really land with me in the same way. But when I rewatched it in my late teens and early 20s when I was, you know, starting to work full time and then in the summers, at least when I wasn't at school um, and really kind of deal with a lot of those same feelings and sort of a lot of those anxieties about like, is this like what I'm going to be stuck doing? That speech takes on whole new meaning. Um and, I, and again, the way that that ends in a way that's not mean-spirited like the original ending, but in a way that is hopeful. Um, and the way the Soul Asylum song comes in, too, because it's a very, like, it's a very 90s sort of rock song, but it has a certain, I don't know, uh, certain optimism to it all the same, even if it's not an outwardly happy song. Right. Um, it's interesting, too, though, talking about that original ending, apparently Smith has said that his model for the film was basically do the right thing where it's the day in the life, small community, lots of comedy, and at the end, there's a tragic death. And I'm like, mm. I guess I see that, but at the same time, I mean, even ignoring the <laughs> the race element to do the right thing and how that's, like, so essential to that ending, do the right thing is so good at layering in, even though a lot of it is seemingly aimless and comedic, those elements of conflict. It's right. very much building that narrative. So when you get to the end, it doesn't come from out of nowhere. It's very much an escalation of what's been seen before, whereas the original Kirk's ending, it's literally just a guy comes in and shoots Dante. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> oh, oh man. So yeah. Yeah. But one of the few instances where the happy ending is actually 100% the right choice and changing it from the darker ending is very much appreciated i think yes that so. uh you know what i'm thinking of you know what movie it's reminding me of terminator 2 <laughs> there's no fate but what we make for ourselves yeah, it's just how terminator 3 just completely decided yeah. but no actually never mind <laughs> yeah never We're mind we can't make up. fate for ourselves yeah Judgment Ugh. Day is inevitable. Dante will always be killed by the random <laughs> quick stop mugger. That's how Clerks 2 should have ended, is that mugger comes back. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, man. Yeah, so that's my moment. I get awesome. really emotional about Kevin Smith again. It's been a while. <laughs> good work. Yeah, good Thank pick. you. All right, I'm going to go to my triumphant pick. And just nice. the fact that I say that it's triumphant could 
potentially be a spoiler for this movie, but oh, that's fine. Uh, it's 2013's Gravity by Alfonso Cuaron. This is the Lost in Space movie, the stuck in space movie that people like to, <laughs> to call it, I guess. So this is uh, the movie we're I'm just sent- thinking it literally now as if it was an adaptation of Lost in Space. <laughs> it's just the same film, but there's a robot with them. Which kind of would be good. I mean, who doesn't? When has a robot ever made a movie worse? That's right. It's definitely not the Rocky movies. <laughs> Rocky Four should be in the Criterion Collection, and I will accept no alternative arguments. So, in Gravity, Sandra Bullock. Uh, the The main premise is that Sandra Bullock is well. She's an astronaut, but not really. She's she's been training to do her. She's a scientist that was training to do her work in space. And there's uh, an accident. Debris hits the station that they're working on, and she basically gets flung out into space. And the entire movie is her trying to survive in this ridiculous situation where, at one point, she's literally just out there floating by herself. Um, and then eventually, she, you know, she makes it uh, back to back to the shuttle, back to the International Space Station. Um, but this debris is flying around and causing chaos everywhere. And so it is, it is a true struggle for her to, to survive all of this and figure out a way to get back to earth safely when she's basically lost communication with, with everybody and she's completely on her own. Uh, and spoiler alert, she does make it back to earth. And when she does, she ends up crashing into, into the ocean, which is usually what astronauts do. She gets out, and after going through all this stuff, it almost reaches this ridiculous level of tragedy where it almost is played up like, okay, now she's on Earth. Is she going to drown? <laughs> it's like, is she going to make it all this way and drown? Um, but she makes it to the beach, and the very final shot of the film is her on the beach, and, of course, her legs are shaky because she's been in space this whole time, and she's trying to stand up and eventually she stands up and starts and starts taking a few steps and walking away and that's the movie that's the way that it ends and when i just say that you're like okay so she was in space she made it to earth and now she's back um a while ago i talked about actually our very first episode i made a joke because uh of the descendants i said that my moment was george clooney sits down <laughs> that was my moment and this one my moment is sandra bullock stands up because without context okay she stood up but the layer behind this movie behind this um incredibly visual and really fun survival action movie that it is you have this layer where you find out that sandra bullock is mourning the death of her daughter and the movie itself is actually about her journey to accept her daughter's death and move on with her life because at this point she's not doing that we we hear through conversations with her and aforementioned george clooney um we kind of learn her backstory and learn what her life is like now and basically her life is not a life she's entirely dehabilitated by uh, by her loss and she is not willing to move on and as she goes through this process she's basically at many stages throughout the movie 
she's having to make a choice of whether to give up or whether to keep carrying on. And she has to make this choice again and again until she's basically coming to the realization that she's making the choice to go on and making the choice to go on. And eventually she says, well, now I've, I've got to make, well, she doesn't say, but the subtext is, I need to make this choice permanently, right? I need to make the choice to live my life again. And when she gets to the beach, that's exactly what that is symbolizing. As she stands up and takes her first few steps on the beach, which, by the way, when I say triumphant, the music at this point reaches this incredible crescendo that, you know, you can only think of it as, as a triumph for her. But that's what she's doing. Is she's taking her first steps, moving away from the tragedy that has defined her life for so many years. And now she can, she can uh, put that behind her and, and move on. So that's, that's why I just love the ending of Gravity so much. It's an awesome scene. Uh, a lot there. Uh, I think for one, you talk about like, it's almost comical how much Sandra Bullock's character endures in just terms of like just piling it on. Which is part of the reason why the blaring score and the really triumphant feelings at the end are like work so well because you really see the hardship endured. So when you when you climb that mountain at the end, or rather when she climbs it and we're along for the ride, it does feel truly it's, profound. And it's cathartic too. Yes, because it's finally over, right? And and we can relax. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. It's funny that when I talked about Clerks, you're like, you know what it reminds me of is Terminator 2. Because this now reminds me of Terminator 2 specifically. I remember showing it to a friend back in like middle school, probably like way back. Uh, and when it got to, you know, they throw the T-1000 in the lava and he melts. Uh, spoilers, I guess. And, my, and after there was like a pause, my buddy turns to me and he's like, he's done, right? He's not going to come up now as like a lava monster fused with the metal <laughs> and a lava terminate. Because there's like, there's so much with that character where he just keeps yeah. on coming back that it's like, it becomes a little bit comical, but also like exhausting in terms of like, is there any way through this? So that, that satisfaction of coming through. Um, yeah. And I also think like the significance of her walking on the beach, you know, the, the basic arc she goes through is a pretty simple one in a lot of ways, learning to sort of live again. Yeah. But because And it's set up simply through dialogue, but clearly enough that at the end, when she does make those steps, it is abundantly clear, I think, to any audience what that that it's more than just she survives physically, that she survives you know emotionally and spiritually really too. Um, and it's just really strong visual filmmaking because you can, and I think a lot of people do kind of, poke fun at gravity for being simple and um a little bit surface and i don't think those critiques are totally wrong but i also think they miss the point and that really undersells how uh quran relays those ideas and emotions purely through not purely through but primarily through audiovisual storytelling yeah um because i think that's really it could be seen as like in a lesser movie it would have been it would have felt trite and it doesn't here it feels a hundred percent earned i feel that too yeah i love i love gravity i loved it i fell in love with it the moment i saw it and i just yeah it's always been it one moves. of my top movies probably of the decade I, it just spoke to me i don't know it's but, a great film i think yeah um you know it's something else too like even people talk about like the spiritual significance of it. Cause like there's images too, of like 
when uh, Sandra Bullock is uh, sort of floating in zero gravity and she's kind of in a fetal position at one point. So there's like visually there's ideas of like uh, rebirth. rebirth. Yeah. Um, there's actually a lot of references, I think, to 2001 A Space Odyssey as well. And in its own more thriller way, I think it achieves a similar type of ending in terms of returning to Earth, reborn, having evolved, one might say. That's a good point. Um, there's one scene in particular that I remember noticing like the first time in the theater where something isn't working on the, I think the Russian ship when Bullock uh, finally commandeers it and she gets really mad and she starts sort of pounding against the machine and you see a pen just kind of float away in zero gravity, which took me as a reference to the scene 2001 where the, the pen has floated out of Floyd Haywood's hand and it's always been written about as like symbolic for mankind losing grasp of its technology. It's like, right. oh. So I see what you're doing, Alfonso. <laughs> At least I think I see what you're doing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, and I think, again, like, and it manages to do that in a way with, A, without being tacky, because I do think these references to 2001 are very, if not deliberate, they're at least aware enough that, like, this is kind of like the other film, but it's so yeah. easy to be really obvious and tacky in 2001 references, and I think Quran manages to ape a lot of that film's grandeur and ideas filter it in a more thriller setting and have it feel, I don't know, really genuine. Right. Yeah. There we go. Gravity. I love it. Yeah. And yeah, when I thought about like, I, when we started doing this podcast and I thought, well, I'm going to want to talk about gravity at some point, but I thought, what, like what moment? And the first thing that came to mind is the end, <laughs> just because mm -hmm. yeah, you're, you're so attached at the end of that, that you're really with her when she's, when she's, finally made it so mm -hmm. all right yeah i mean it's funny too you talk about like how she could have just drowned there because there's even like the story of how her daughter died is literally just like she just slipped at school and hit her head mm -hmm. like it's it's so simple and so you know like the the randomness of life that there isn't nice satisfying arcs and sometimes things do just kind of happen it would not have been unreasonable that it ends where you know the the hatch to get out malfunctions and she just drowns right and yet i can't imagine like the most devastating ending possible um or if somebody just been... shows up on the beach and shoots her and takes her money <laughs> exactly <laughs> it's the same actor too yeah. his one function is to just murder protagonists inexplicably yeah i mean it's you know it's a great ending and even the fact that, like, we're talking about it in the capacity we are, I think, speaks really highly of it. Because you can, as you kind of alluded to at the beginning, reduce it to just, she survives at the end. It's a thriller, but will she make it to Earth? And she does. Like, it's it's very straightforward, point A to B, but the journey is so well articulated that getting to point B is a substantial sort of uh, journey. Right. All right. So let's, uh, I know you've been wanting to talk about this movie for a while, so let's move on to your sure thing. third pick. So my final pick comes from Barry Lyndon, uh, Stanley Kubrick's, um, we'll say coldly received epic. Uh, I think more and more people are coming around to it in the last 15 years or so, but it seems one of the more divisive films, especially when one first goes through Kubrick's I know I didn't, I wasn't crazy about it, but I've come to really love it. So story of Barry Lyndon in the Vegas nutshell is that it is a rise and fall story set in 18th century Ireland and then uh, Britain about a Irish rogue who cons his way up to the English aristocracy for just a little bit and then gets tumbling right back out 
um, having basically accomplished nothing. The final scene of the film is his now ex-wife writing his Barry's annual uh, annuity check for 500 guineas and uh, with her son and, I think, lawyer present. And as she's writing it, and that's the final sort of scene in the film, and then we cut to this title card that says Epilogue, and I'm just going to read the contents of that title. It was in the reign of George III that the aforesaid personages lived and quarreled. Good or bad, handsome or ugly, rich or poor, they are all equal now. So, a lot of Barry Lyndon is, it's this really grand film epic with like the most opulent costumes and lighting possible. Like it really feels like you're transported back to 18th century uh, Europe. And it's so meticulously made. And yet the irony of the film is that it's not about anything that's that important in terms of great epics. There's even a line during one of the battles where the narration says something like, though this battle was never recorded in any of the history books, it was memorable enough for those who took part in it. So the great irony is that for all the opulence in production, the film is put towards very minor things historically. The film is constantly emphasizing how small and largely insignificant in a cosmic sense all of these individuals are. And to that end, Barry, as a sort of epic protagonist, he makes choices throughout the film, and some of them do really matter a great deal. But at the end of the day, he doesn't achieve all that much, and he doesn't accomplish that much. He's very, I mean, he's a fictional character, but within this world, he's barely a footnote. Um, and I think this final line about, you know, they are all equal now, I cannot think of a greater summary for just how, or just like a more humbling statement in terms of just our place on this rock and how ultimately little power and control we really have. And what I like about it too, is it's kind of a, it's a vague statement in a lot of ways. You could read it in some ways as a very hopeful statement, rich or poor, handsome or ugly, good or bad, like everything is sort of equaled. And that's kind of an affirming idea in some ways. But on the other hand, it's very <laughs> concerning because it basically, you could read it as like nothing you do matters, <laughs> um, which is not ultimately where I land on it. Um, but one of the reasons too, that really, this really stuck out to me recently is I just finished reading the book, The Luck of Barry Lyndon, um, which is interesting for a number of reasons, but this line actually appears on like the first or second page very early in the book by Barry himself. And it's basically just acts as set, like to establish the setting really. Um, but the way that Kubrick takes that line and reuses it for this ending instead turns it into something so much more profound and thoughtful. Um, and the other, there's kind of two other quick things I wanted to say. I mean, people who know my video essay channel, Eyebrow Cinema, who've been following it for a long time, might remember that one of my earliest videos is about Barry Lyndon. And I mostly stand by my thesis from that video. But I do say <laughs> very emphatically, Barry is an unworthy little, or an unlikable little shit, completely unworthy of an epic. <laughs> And I do agree that he's unworthy of the epic, but I do somewhat disagree that he is an unlikable little shit. The more I watch the film, the more empathy I have for him. And the more this changes that final line into being not necessarily a nihilistic statement about how nothing matters, but more of a tragic expression of how, you know, in spite of all this character, in spite of all this character's flaws and his strengths and all he fought for, um, how little was accomplished. And it takes on a more tragic meaning. The other thing, though, that had never occurred to me until just this most recent viewing is Lady Linden, because she has no real part in Barry's being excised from her family and from England. 
she is it's very clear for at least one point in the film she does really love her husband and even after that initial honeymoon period when barry becomes a bit more cruel and uh unfaithful to her they do make up and she does seem loyal to him and on his side for a lot of it so i didn't really think about it before but until this viewing but i'm like how does she feel about what's happened to him because she doesn't have a say in it and she doesn't have a chance to say goodbye and in that scene where she's signing the annuity check you see her see the name and she has an emotional reaction to it and oh. you know she looks to her son and to her lawyer and then just kind of signs it but it makes you think like is she like is it upsetting for her because she remembers this horrible person who made her life worse or is it because she misses him and she can't do anything about it and she's kind of a prisoner too and then again, that brings up this line about they're all equal now. She's supposed to be a woman of of title. She's supposed to have power and authority, but she kind of doesn't too. Right. Um, and I think that's just really, like so many other things, just hammered home by that final line. So, yeah, that's my pick. Good that, old Barry Lyndon. <laughs> good. Nice. And that uh, that message seems very much something Kubrick would be into, right? Like that's absolutely seem like you can tell that that is what Kubrick sees in this movie and that's what he wants to get across. Mm -hmm. I like that he, he punctuates it a little bit with that, with that line. So you have to remind me where, what ends up happening to Barry? Like, is he just exiled (laughs) or? Well, he becomes, he basically squanders most of the Linden fortune that he marries into through bad investments because he's not very good at being, you know, a lord. And then the stepson whom he'd made an enemy returns. This is after Barry's biological son has died in an accident. And he has basically, he sees Barry as the enemy and he needs to be get, gotten rid of for his mother to be, you know, happy and stable. So the stepson, Lord Bullingdon, challenges Barry to a duel. And this is also really crucial. So Bullingdon gets first shot and his his uh, pistol misfires before even aiming. It's just into the ground. And so he's like, I need another gun. And it's like, sorry, you have to let Mr. Linden take his shot first. So basically he's screwed because Barry's an exceptional duelist. And he's like, there's almost no way this kid's not going to die. He actually throws up for a second. There's like this long drawn out bit. But then when it's Barry's time to shoot, he just fires his pistol into the ground. Even though he hates this kid and has more than once physically, you know, attacked him throughout the story he shows him mercy at this moment, which is another thing that, like, we could spend a long time talking about, like, why does he do that? Because I think there's different reasons as to potentially why. But then Bullingdon's asked, well, uh, given that Barry has fired his pistol into the ground, are you satisfied? And he's like, no. He gets that second gun, he shoots Barry, and then they have to amputate his leg. So he leaves maimed, penniless, exiled from England forever, and if he ever returns, his annuity is, you know, cut off. Uh, and there's even like voiceover narration that he dies friendless, childless, alone, and poor. It's like that's great. <laughs> <laughs> that's so good. So, so maybe Kubrick's idea is not uh, quite as optimistic as how you see it. Possibly not. But yeah. again, like I do, I, what I guess I find interesting is like thinking about how does the film, how does Kubrick feel about Barry, and how do I feel about Barry? Because, and again, having 
read the book, as much as I found him an unlikable character in the film, especially when the first couple times I saw it, he's so much worse in the book. Oh, yeah. Because the book is 100% from his perspective, and everything, he's just dripping with arrogance and condescension and vanity of like being this sophisticated upper class person who shouldn't have to you know dabble with the lower rabbles and it's like i hate this guy so much <laughs> but in the film like he's he can be really cruel and callous and really selfish but he, he can also be profoundly kind and there's moments where he seems so touched and affected by the people in his life i mean certainly the death of his son which in the book is you know, there's some tragedy to it, but very quickly Barry switch sh uh, shifts to how it affects him economically. But in the film, it's like this reservoir of grief. Like it's hmm. so sad, and Barry, it, like it, it just completely changes Barry from that point on. So it is like what happens to him is obviously very dark and despairing. But it, it it's it's asking, is this you know something befalling a bad person who kind of deserved it? Uh, is it someone who? really doesn't deserve this fate and is a lot more tragic or is it just nature nature the universe doesn't care yeah. it doesn't place weight on the morality of his actions it just we're caught up in you know a universe that's more powerful than us and we can only do our best to try and navigate it yeah it's probably the latter probably yeah <laughs> um which makes it an interesting follow-up to clockwork orange too because it had all those debates about alex's morality and if it's justifiable for the film to portray him as charming in spite of him being horrible and i think this film kind of answers that with that the universe doesn't care about morality he can be a cruel person and can also still get away with everything because there's there is not a sort of profound justice at work that like self-corrects yeah and oddly enough the movie where you would think that that would show up the most is 2001 and i don't get those vibes from 2001 Mm -hmm. yeah i agree which is which is interesting but yeah. yeah there's this famous kubrick quote i don't know if he said it in context of 2001 but i think it's often most associated with 2001 where he says the scariest thing about the universe is not that it is hostile but that it is indifferent and it sounds like a very 2001 quote but i'm right. like it's way more barry linden <laughs> yeah. that's the full that's the whole movie oh man okay on where do you think you are on the list of uh, biggest Barry Lyndon fans in the world. <laughs> where, where might you be on that list? I mean, I'm, there's probably like really extreme people who are, I mean, I don't know if you remember, but the guy on my initial video where I talk about in the first 15 seconds or so how a lot of people find the film boring and somebody paused the video then and wrote like a six paragraph comment about how I was a horrible person for saying Barry Lyndon was boring. And he, he said that if I was... Uh, kidnapped by drug dealers he would convince my family not to pay the ransom oh and then wrote goodness. like if you've seen sicario you'll know how it ends <laughs> it was great but so he might be a bigger fan than i am because i've never threatened anyone to that extreme over Fair barry linden the oh, irony wow. of course that i deeply love the film so he was mad over basically nothing but yeah i don't know i mean i talk about this movie a lot um i i, I really really love it which is fun too because again when i first saw it i was like like a lot of people's like, this is kind of boring. I like yeah. the Kubrick movies like Clockwork Orange where there's like, it's really fast paced and weird and dark. And <laughs> I don't want to see people talking by candlelight about <laughs> annuities. This is crap. <laughs> but the more with time, it's become like one of my favorite films, certainly one of my favorite Kubrick films, but I think one of my favorite films, period. Um, where do you stand on Barry Lyndon? I, you know what? It's been so long since I've seen it, but 
I do want to give it a go. I do want to watch it again. Uh, it rules. I'm telling you. Okay. Well, give it's it good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, all right, there we go. Another good pick. We've got six movies where hopefully if you if you love those movies as well, then hopefully we uh, did them justice. And if not, we recommend them. So check yes. them out. Yeah, these are all really great films, I think. Um, and really different ones. And, and yeah. different ones in terms of when they were made, too. Like right. I, We didn't really plan this, but we cover, I think... Uh, the 2010s is the only decade we both picked a movie from, but we got the 70s, the 90s, or I guess, no, we got two because Pelham and uh, Lyndon are both 70s as well, but whatever. Large range of films. Um, and yeah, I mean, we asked this uh, most episodes, but I think this one is especially, what are your favorite, you know, movie endings? And especially not just like the last act or the climax, but like the final sort of thing we see and hear, what are your favorites? Because yeah, yeah. I think there's a lot of good ones. What's your favorite Inception spinning top idea? There you go. Because <laughs> we, we didn't talk about that one, but that was probably one of the first ones that came to mind when you think of final final frames. But there we go. Okay, so follow us on cinema underscore seconds on Twitter. Uh, we're cinema in seconds at Gmail is our email. Check out Dan at Eyebrow Cinema on YouTube. And thanks for listening. <laughs>